Thanks for checking out the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. To find out more about us, visit our website at iloveelevate.com. You can also stay up to date with what's going on by finding us on social media platforms like Instagram, Facebook, and Snapchat. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and sharing it with your friends. We hope you enjoy this message and it brings you closer to Jesus. What's up, Elevate? How are y'all doing tonight? I am super excited to launch our new just two-week series on the book of Jonah. It's going to be a real trip. We're going to see Jonah from some different angles. But what I hope more than anything else is that you're going to see our Father from a whole new angle. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good and merciful and graceful. We offer up our hearts to you. Open up our ears, our eyes, our minds, our hearts. Plant seeds in us. Open us up to recognizing your love. Teach us your ways. Use this really interesting story to give yourself glory so that we can proclaim how good of a God you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have an incredible three, almost four-year-old named Dominic, and he has a love for dropping stones down the drains alongside the street in front of our house. Every time we go for a rock, he'll like pull out of my hand, and he'll go and grab a rock and then hustle to a drain and drop it down because that, that bloop at the bottom is so satisfying to him. But at the same time, I can see when a car is coming, and a car can be coming bearing down on us, and he'll be wriggling trying to get away from me to go grab the stupid rock. Here in this moment, we have differing views of what is good for his life. To him, I am being the bad guy. I'm being the punk that is killing his fun while I'm trying to be the father that protects him. I see more than he does. In the book of Jonah, we see a character that has differing views with the father about what is good and what a good outcome looks like. Very often, as we read through this, it's going to seem as if it is a character study of the prophet Jonah. It's going to show the nature of disobedience and that internal battle that we all struggle with against what is good for us and what our heavenly dad calls good. And so, in every way, Jonah is going to be our anti-hero. The idea that he is motivated by his own ambitions, by his own whims, most of them very negative, and yet God gets glory. God saves people. God still gets his work done. Jonah is a prophet who rebels out of anger at God because God loves people. He's motivated by selfishness and self-righteousness, and yet over and over and over again, we're going to see how God uses him to direct impossible people to repentance so that our Heavenly Father can show mercy. How do we read this book? It is different from every other prophetic book. You have to first break away from the Sunday school paradigm and the coloring sheets that we got as kids about Jonah, and he's got a little smiley face, and he's praying inside the whale. The book of Jonah is not about the whale. The whale is all of like two verses inside this book. This book is about Jonah and his relationship 
to God. How do we read it? We read it in two different forms. This is going to sound so ridiculous, but follow me. The first is satire, similar to Saturday Night Live. It's going to make fun of people. It's going to give you a stereotype, and then it's going to flip that stereotype upside down, giving you the opposite of what you expect. We can also read it a lot like a comic book. Everything is extreme and over the top and backwards and upside down. Are you ready to begin? <laughs> Let's do this thing. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now, the word of Yahweh, if you look in your Bibles and you see that L-O-R-D, Lord, all capital letters, that is our editor signifying to us that it is the divine personal name of God, Yahweh, as we see in Exodus chapter 3. So, now the word of Yahweh came to Jonah. All right, so Jonah is a prophet, and he is speaking the word of the Lord. Now, prophets are the ones in the Old Testament that God speaks to and speaks through. And a prophet has a very specific job. It's not a fun job. It's actually rather uncomfortable. Their function is to accuse people of their sin and call them to repentance so that they can change their ways. And if people choose not to change their ways, there will be judgment from God. And if people do change their ways, it gives God the opportunity to bestow his mercy and grace, his rescue, restoration, and his blessings. And so if Jonah is a prophet, he is called by God to accuse people of sin. So now the word of Yahweh came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. That's supposed to leave you kind of with a chuckle. Jonah's name means dove. Dove, as in pure and clean and gentle. Amittai means faithfulness. Faithfulness as in consistent, obedient, loyal. When we read his name, we should be like, what? Jonah? Dove, the son of faithfulness? That is the most ironic thing ever. He is anything but faithful. He is anything but gentle. In the book of Jonah, everything is backwards. In every other prophetic book, God is going to speak through a prophet, and the collection that we have is a collection of God's messages to people through that prophet. If we look in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Hosea, those books are full of prophetic words from God and very little story. Jonah is backwards. We're going to get a whole lot of story, and we're going to learn not through the prophet's words, but through the prophet's actions. We're going to get a study of his heart through what he does. And we're going to see a whole lot of stereotypes flipped upside down. The man of God is going to be shown to be selfish and prejudiced, and the pagans are going to be shown to be humble and quick to repent. Jonah, son of Amittai, dove the son of faithfulness. All right, what does God say? Verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it. Do your job. For their wickedness has come up before me. Nineveh, if you don't know this already, Nineveh is the capital of the country or empire known as Assyria. It was the greatest world power at the time, but also it was the most violent and brutal nation of its time. They would go on campaigns regularly to conquer and plunder a city. And 
and while they were still besieging the city, if anyone fell out of the walls or they defeated one of the armies in battles or they found uh, villagers outside the city walls, they would take their bodies, impale them, put them on stakes, and surround the city with the city's population on stakes so that whenever you would go to the wall to look out, you would see your neighbors, your friends, and your family impaled around you. When they finally conquered your city, they would take the leaders and skin the leaders alive in front of the people to show their domination, and then they would deport the people back home as slaves. Assyria was a bad nation, no fun to be around. Further, Assyria was the enemy of Israel, and it will soon, in the next 50 to 60 years, wipe out 10 of the 12 Israel tribes effectively removing the northern kingdom of Israel from existence. Assyria is a bad nation. So here in this verse, we have Jonah, and he's called to go to Nineveh, that great city, cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. God is referring himself to, referring to himself as a king, a king that is ruling, has decided to act against a city to give punishment for wickedness. Verse 3, But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of Yahweh. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, Tarshish is the very last port before you go through the Strait of Gibraltar at the edge of the Mediterranean Sea and go out into the open Atlantic Ocean. Nineveh was the opposite direction, east towards Assyria. So not only did Jonah go the opposite direction, he was headed to the farthest point, the opposite direction, all the way to the edge of the known world to get away from God. Absolute rebellion. And by the way, he's the first prophet ever in the Bible to ever run away from God. Everything is just backwards and upside down. So let's ask a question. What is Jonah's motivation for his escape? Maybe it's self-preservation. He knows how bad the city is, how bad they are to their enemies. Maybe he knows how dangerous it is, and he's scared. He, or maybe... Number two, maybe his motivation is a self-righteousness and a hate for Nineveh. I mean, it doesn't say that Jonah is fleeing Nineveh or fleeing the call to go to Nineveh. It says twice in this verse that he is fleeing the presence of Yahweh. Whoa. Let's look at Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. Jonah actually tells us what his motivation was. Here we go, verse 2. So he prayed to Yahweh and said, right now, Yahweh has just spared the city. Ah, Yahweh, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, or this is why, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. (laughs) Maybe his motivation for going to Tarshish, had nothing to do with his fear for his own life. Maybe it was out of a prejudice against the city. 
He's running from God because he knows God's character, and he knows that God's going to try to find a way to save the city, and Jonah wants that city burnt. Jonah, what are you doing? But Yahweh sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Question, who sent the storm? Yes, it was Yahweh. Interesting. God is not doing this to punish Jonah. God's not hovering over the smite button. What's God's motivation here? God is pursuing Jonah because he desires to save Nineveh. The storm is a severe mercy on behalf of the lost people of Nineveh. God is pursuing lost people. This is amazing. Showing us the character of God. Verse 5. Then the mariners, the sailors, were afraid. Every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had laid down, and was fast asleep. So he's on the ship among pagans. In a polytheistic worldview, whenever something bad is happening, you do kind of like a a shotgun prayer. you got to figure out what God is mad at you so you can appease him. So you pray to every God. You try to appease every God. Because you're not really sure which one of them is angry. Now, everyone is running around. There's frantic activity. They're running around the boat. They're throwing their very livelihood out into the water. They're not going to get paid for this big, expensive journey. They're throwing this stuff in the water. Everybody's rushing around. Meanwhile, Jonah is sleeping. Wait, wait, wait. Did you catch this? The pagans are praying to their gods. Jonah is sleeping? It's so backwards. Question. Who's suffering the consequences of Jonah's sin? That's right. Everyone around him. Don't don't we get a glimpse at Jonah's heart? He's run from God. He's rejected. He's taken action to, to run from his calling and his purpose, and he's become numb unaware that he's even become a wrecking ball to the people around him in his life. How dangerous is that? Verse 6. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. Or perhaps your God will notice us so we may not perish. The captain is frustrated, right? It tells him to call on his God. That is ridiculous. The pagan is telling Jonah to pray. The pagan is telling the man of God what he should do. Isn't that wild? And then he says, maybe your God will notice us. And that is hilarious to me. Of course God notices them. God's the one wrecking their boat. (laughs) And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots. It's like, the magic dice. Let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Jonah gets spotlighted. 
And they start questioning him. Then they said to him, please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? Where are you from? What is your country? What people are you? Now let's get this picture. Before I read the next verse, let's get this picture. This is Jonah. Gets a word from God. Not only rejects God, runs in the opposite direction, hoping to somehow get away from the creator of all things, gets on a boat, heads into a storm, totally not caring about what happens to anybody else on the ship, snoozing, then he gets confronted, and this guy who is right now on the run in rebellion, he responds to their questions and says, so he said to them, I am Hebrew, and I fear Yahweh. What? No, you don't. Are you kidding? Of course you don't fear Yahweh, or you wouldn't... Fear Yahweh is in respect, obey, being under the authority of. That is a bunch of religious baloney. And then, let's keep going. The God of heaven, as in God's vantage point, as he sees everything. The guy on the run, trying to hide, is saying with his mouth that God sees everything. Who made the dry land and the sea. (laughs) That's right. I'm running from God via boat. The creator of the sea hopped on a raft. Ludicrous. Everything. He's completely a contradiction between his actions and his words. Verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing even more tempestuous. Use that word this week. The pagans seem to figure out what's going on even before Jonah does. All right, so what's what's Jonah do? Verse 12. And then he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great storm is because of me. Okay, we got to stop right there. What is Jonah's motivation for asking them to throw him out of the boat into the sea? Kill me, is essentially what he's saying. Number one, he's had a change of heart. His noble self is rising to self-sacrifice because he cares about these men. Or what if Jonah is still being defiant, running from God? What better way to make sure that he doesn't have to go to Nineveh than to get himself killed. Would this be outside of Jonah's character? In chapter 4, whenever God spares Nineveh, Jonah says, God, just let me die. Just kill me. He requests to die out of anger that God would love people. If he had some sort of change of heart, consider this. If he had a change of heart, his answer of being obedient in calming the storm would have been, Yahweh, I surrender. I'll go. I'll go to Nineveh. But that's not what he says. He requests death. This may be Jonah's most selfish move yet. But God continues to pursue on behalf of Nineveh. Verse 13. Even the sailors think this is a bad idea. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to try to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they cried out to Yahweh and said, wait, 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 hold on. (laughs) So we're this far into the book, and the first 
people to pray to Yahweh is not the man of God, prophet of Yahweh. Oh, I serve Yahweh. What? The very first prayer offered to Yahweh in this book is from the pagans. How backwards and upside down is that? So they cry out to Yahweh, We pray, O Yahweh, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. They think it's such a bad idea that they try to fight their way back to land first. And then they think it's such a bad idea that they actually pray that Jonah's blood won't be on their heads. They didn't even believe what Jonah had to say. Jonah said, you throw me out and God will be appeased. They don't even take Jonah at his word anymore. They're worried that if they throw out Jonah out, God's going to be even more mad with them. Verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and they threw him into the sea and the sea ceased its raging. The storm is stilled. Then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and took vows. Isn't that crazy? It says that the men feared Yahweh. Not only that, but they went and made sacrifices. That's not something that you do in the middle of the boat. You can't just build an altar and set a fire in the middle of your ship. This is over a period of time. They had to make it back to land. They had to go and find a temple of Yahweh. They had to bring offerings and offer sacrifices. And it says that they made vows, vowing their lives to God. Not their pagan gods anymore, but to the one true God. They are shown to fear Yahweh through their actions versus Jonah, the man of God, who says he fears Yahweh, but his words are in complete disagreement with his actions, with his disobedience. Jonah is an anti-hero in every way. He is super flawed, rebellious, prejudiced, selfish, self-righteous, and yet through him, God is turning people to himself. Is God hindered from his work by flawed people? Is God's will compromised because of imperfect followers? Is God's will not going to be done because you're imperfect or I make mistakes? This is a serious question that seriously forms your idea of who God is. Is he sovereign? Can he draw a straight line with a crooked stick? Thank you, Lord, that you can use us for your will and your work. Verse 17. Now Yahweh had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish, three days and three nights. And this should be the end of the story. He is at his lowest point. He's on the run. He's been found out. Not only that, but he's been thrown overboard. He's drowning. He's underwater, sinking. And just to add insult to injury, he's eaten by a fish. And this would be the end of the story. Unless your God is actually the ruler of the earth and the sea. But Yahweh had prepared a fish. God had planned this all along. He knew it was coming, and he had already set into the order of events his plan to work out. 
There's an incredible story about Jesus in Matthew 12. And it's a little shocking the first time you read it, especially when you recognize how much of a punk Jonah was. Jonah is mentioned in Matthew by Jesus. Chapter 12, verse 38. The Pharisees are trying hard to catch him, catch Jesus in anything. They're trying to get him to show some sort of sign to prove that he's God, hoping that he'll fail and they can disprove him completely. Verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up and judge this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. You see, the whale is not God's instrument of punishment. The whale representing death. Jonah's just sitting in there waiting to be digested. He is at the lowest point. He is as near death as you can possibly be. But that object of death is being used for grace and salvation. The whale is an instrument of God's mercy and grace and salvation. Think about this. Will there be another object of death that God will use to swallow up sin and rebellion? Will there be another time that God will take what should have been the end and make it a new beginning? Will there be another time when the greatness of God will swallow up those in rebellion to give them a second chance and to give them new life and new hope? That's the cross. God would take death and wrap it around Jesus and bury him in it. And through death, through the cross, he would pour out undeserved mercy, bringing pagans, you and me, to know him. He used the death of Jesus Christ to give us new life. There are so many beautiful comparisons between Jonah and Jesus. Look at this. First, Jonah's name, Dove, the son of faithfulness. He didn't live up to it. But the one who would fulfill where Jonah went wrong certainly did. Jesus is referring back to Jonah to say, just like Jonah, I am the dove, the son of faithfulness. Number two, God sent them both to go accuse of sin so that God could show mercy. Number three, Jonah ran, Jesus obeyed, a contrast. Number four, both of them spent time asleep in the bottom of a boat during a great storm. One was guilty, and that's why the storm was there. One was innocent and would take power over the storm. Number five, three days and three nights. Jonah for his own rebellion, Jesus for mine and yours. 
And number six, a resurrection from the impossible, from the depths, from the fish, from the grave. You take a look at the graphic that we're using for Jonah. It's a dead fish on the seashore. It's silly, it's ridiculous, but it's actually really profound. This fish doesn't represent the big one that came and scooped Jonah up for salvation. This fish represents Jonah's passion for Nineveh. It was dead, limp, atrophied, lifeless. Contrasting the great fish representing Jesus, who was the tool for salvation. The huge fish that was active and at work, that came and was employed and sent from the Father to swallow up those in rebellion to give them new life. Jonah was cold and hateful and selfish, and he ran. Jesus was kind and loving and self-sacrificing. And he closed the distance so that he could swallow us up in his mercy. Jonah was the antihero. Jesus is the hero. Jonah's the limp fish. Jesus is the big fish. This, this book was never a character study of Jonah and his disobedience. It is a character study of God and his mercy. Look at the lengths that God is willing to go to for the redemption of an evil city. And you know what? When Jonah ran away, God could have called someone else. Fine, go. I'll call this other person to go. But look at the lengths that God goes to to redeem Jonah. This book is not purposed to criticize a prophet. It is purposed to glorify God and teach us of his mercy. Nineveh is in sin. Later it's going to say they don't know their left hand from their right. But God is sending a severe mercy through the storm to try to bring a prophet to them. But God could have used anybody. And when Jonah rebelled, God still cared, still loved, was still graceful, and still pursued Jonah. Went after him with a storm and with a wail because his heart was still after him to bring him back to repentance, to bring him back where the prophet was supposed to call Nineveh to repentance so God could show mercy and grace, God is calling Jonah first to repentance because he intends to show him mercy and grace. Because that is the character study of God in the book of Jonah. What a glorious God we serve. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then... Jonah prayed to Yahweh, his God. (laughs) Jonah is finally praying. We've gone through this whole series of events, and the man of God has still not offered up word one. Now, in the belly of the fish, he is praying. And he said, and he's about to unpack this beautiful Hebraic poem that is a prayer offered to the Lord. And he said, I cried out to Yahweh because of my affliction. And he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, that Sheol is the place that the dead dwell in Jewish tradition. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. Jonah gets something right. So often, we believe that when we're at our worst moments, that's when God is furthest away. And here, 
he's referring to his God as answering him and hearing his voice. Jonah gets it right, that when he's at his lowest, God is nearest to us. Isn't that beautiful? For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The water surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed in around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. He's recognizing that God did this. God put him there. When Jonah thought that he was getting what he wanted, he found out it was terrible. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. Moorings is like the idea of roots, like the very bottom of the mountains, the very roots under the water of the mountains, the lowest point. The earth with its prison closed behind me. The earth with its bars, your translation may say. Those are like prison bars, trapping him and closing him forever. Yet, yet, thank you, Jesus, for the word yet. Because so many of us, every one of us, needed a yet. You have brought up my life from the pit. Oh, Yahweh, my God. This is the turning point. Finally, listen to the language he's used up until this point. Chapter 1 and these few verses in chapter 2. He's using a lot of descending language. He uses the word down a lot. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the ship. He goes down to the lowest parts of the ship where he fell into a deep sleep. He is in the belly of Sheol. The waves passed over him. The deep closes around him down to the roots of the mountains. Jonah represents us. Everything keeps getting worse and worse, sinking deeper and deeper into sin, deeper into rebellion, into a numbness and a coldness against the Lord. Jonah is physically and spiritually at his lowest. Think about that. Jonah saying to the sailors, kill me so I don't have to obey God. Jonah has come to a place where he realizes that he is hopeless. He has nothing going for him. He's in the belly of a fish waiting to be fish poop. He has nothing going for him except the character of God. God's mercy, God's grace, his forgiveness, his faithfulness, Jonah's name. He has nothing going for him except the mercy of Yahweh. Yet, he begins to worship within his circumstances. There's no hope of rescue. He doesn't know that the fish is going to spit him up and vomit him out. He doesn't understand God's plan. He's just squished into a gut waiting to die. And yet he worships nonetheless. How many times do we find our place at our lowest point, and we remember to worship. Maybe that's why it's called the sacrifice of praise. Jonah had this figured out for a brief moment in his life. He made the connections. At the lowest point, he turns to the Lord and offers worship. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered Yahweh, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Verse 8, then those who regard worthless idols forsake the mercy that could be theirs. Some of your translations say forsake their own mercy. It's the idea of they forsake the mercy that could have belonged to them, God's mercy. 
but I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is from Yahweh. That's so interesting. Those who regard worthless idols, but I'll sacrifice to you. Why is there a mention of idols here? Maybe Jonah's having to throw away an idol himself. Maybe this turning point is beginning to open his eyes that he himself was an idol. His selfishness, his idea of what was good for his life, his outlook of what was good was an idol that he was having to throw away. Doesn't this battle wage inside all of us? We have this outlook for ourselves of what we are sure is the best for our lives. And we fast become our own little gods. So quick to run from what our Heavenly Father is calling us to do or to not do. Maybe we're a lot like Jonah. Maybe we relate to him. The one who ran. The one who had to sink to the deepest parts before we're willing to wake up to call on God before we will remember that he is a God of grace and mercy, patient. But I hope that this message rings a bell for you tonight to wake up before you're there, to remember who your God is, to remember who you serve before you've had to be at the bottom to be obedient while you're still seeing sunlight. May God give us the courage this week to ask him where we may need to repent, how we can be obedient. Let's do that together. I'd like everyone to bow your heads, close your eyes. Let's take a moment together to pray that God will show us Maybe a place that we need to repent. Repent meaning we're going one direction and we stop and turn and go the opposite direction. Maybe there's something that's been laid on our hearts that God has been sort of pricking us with, someone that we were supposed to talk to, something we were supposed to do, someplace we were supposed to go or not go. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Let's take a minute and begin to pray just to yourself, Lord, is there any area in me? Search me and know me. Surface that thing that I'm in rebellion about. Give me the courage and the strength to be obedient. Show me how I can take baby steps this week towards serving you fully with a whole heart. Jesus. Lord, we offer this this prayer up to you. Come be sovereign. You have already set in order the domino effect that is going to lead us here. And that sovereign plan continues into tomorrow and the next day. And Lord, you have us here tonight for a reason. And I pray that you're planting seeds in every one of our hearts. That you've already made provision for us to be obedient. That you're already stirring inside of us your Holy Spirit is, is goading us and kicking us and driving us towards you, towards obeying your word, 
towards loving you with a whole heart and loving people. Loving the ones that are hard to love. Heavenly Father, we surrender ourselves. We don't need no big fish coming after us because we are already laid out before you. Our hearts belonging wholly and completely to you. Our lives being under your control. You, Yahweh, are our God. And we serve you. And Jesus, holy and precious, incredible, graceful, merciful, righteous, just, and holy name. Amen.